Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 250. That's right, 250. I'm your host, Derek Moore. With me again is my semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Zega Financial, Jay Pastorcelli. Jay, we made it to 250. Wow. Congratulations, Derek. Woohoo! That's awesome. Yeah, that's... I. It, when I was setting up the room today, we recorded one of these in, in a room. I was like, oh yeah, it is 250. So I tell you though, all right, so let's just dive right into it. Yesterday, I believe, was the first time I remember seeing the VVIX and the VIX both unchanged for the day. Did you see that? Did you catch that like I did? Uh, I did. I thought there was a mistake in the data when we were looking at our, our trigger information. I was like, did this get put in correctly? But I saw that, yes. So obviously I didn't do any work to to see when when this has happened, but really both of them? Like this tells me that it's the crouching, it's it's the person crouching. Like volatility is crouching. It may not do anything and may just stay unvolatile for a while. And we've seen that before. But to me, this seems like something's going to break one way or another. I don't know though. Well, I mean, just great history kind of tells us that's the case when these uh, the springs coil a little bit, uh, you know, then you've got the you get this pop. But look, it could just be somebody who's crouching for a while and then stands up slowly. But that's less. Obviously, we're not making a market call here, but I mean, that's less likely, in my opinion, just from what we've seen in the past. And when we study this data, when we see kind of these compressing moves or lack of moves, like we use, you know, a standard deviation function for you uh, accounting nerds out there like us, where we'll, you know, watch how much it moves relative, you know, to its average. And, you know, when it doesn't move very much like this, it tells you that there's a lot of kind of, you know, consolidation before you get, uh, you get the pop. Now in stocks, you would say it could go one way or the other up or down. Um, But I think with the VIX, you know, trading, you know, with a 12 handle, yes, it could go down to 10, but it won't fall out of bed. I mean, I don't think we've ever seen like, it's not, there's no catastrophic drop from 12 to 10 or nine, right? This is usually a pop higher. And in this situation, probably a pop higher due to bearer sentiment and fear in the market kind of coming back in, right? Speculation to the downside, those kinds of things. Yeah, obviously, this is why we hedge. We don't know necessarily which direction the market's going to go, but we buy and we hedge. Speaking of hedging, Jay, I I say this like I'm, I'm laughing because obviously you and I look at this every single day. Put protection is very cheap right now. I mean, I, I just looked at December of 2024. So that's 387 days away, you know, the at the money put. And what that means is, you know, the market's trading right around, uh, I'll I'll use SPY, 455 and right right under there, about 454.61. The 455 put, it's it's a cost of about 5%. Now, we could talk about whether that's a high cost or whether that's a good cost or a bad cost. But my point is, Jay, Protection's really cheap. And in fact, if you go down to, oh, I don't know, roughly 10% out of the money, so that's 10% down, 10% lower. I mean, you know, that's like a cost of 2.7%. Jay, protection's cheap. Nobody wants to be protected, I guess, right? Uh, Yeah. I mean, that number that you're talking about, actually on an annualized basis, Derek, because there's more than- correct. 
you know, 387 is more than 365 on an annualized basis, that 10% out of the money protection, which happens to be on the SPY, the 410 strike, is only running you 2.5%. So you're right, you pay 2.7, but you get more than a year. So annualize it out 2.5. Anytime that that number is under three by itself, we would consider it, you know, fairly cheap, right? So uh, it, you know, doesn't mean it, uh, it just means it's, it costs you less to protect out a year than it normally does. And, you know, if you could be long the market here and protect yourself, you know, from a drop of 10%, really 12% to break even, right? Because the cost of the hedge plus the downside move of the, of the, of the, of the market, like that's, that's a cost for us that we would look at it and go, yeah, that's, that's not bad, right? Markets, you know, near, an intra a one year high, right? The market is a volatility is low. So option protection is cheap. That is kind of the neat thing about hedging, right? Like when, when, when you don't think you need it, like all insurance, it costs you less, but it always happens at a higher end of the market. Like, so obviously you want protection on after you've had gains. So you generally, I mean, people, right? So it's actually nice that volatility goes down when the market goes up and you'd be like, oh, I had a nice run. I had a plus 20% run. Why not throw on a hedge for the next year? Because I don't know what's going to happen. And oh, it happens to be the cheapest it's been in four years, right? It's like, so it's one of those things that um, I, I'm glad you brought it up because we have been looking at it pretty actively the last you know week or so on you know any strategies that are designed with a hedge to reevaluate and think if it makes sense to add one back on, right? Or or move the one that we have on, right? Kind of reinsure yourself at a higher level. The downside, I mean, let's just use in the, at the money. If you all you're going to do is, hey, I'm going to buy SPY, I'm going to buy uh, one at the money put. It's like, okay, if the market goes nowhere, you lose 5% because that's your cost to hedge over the next 387 days. And as you said, it's annualized, it's actually less. But let me stick with the the absolute cost. I guess absolute cost is the right term. Or yeah, it's fine. Use five. Yeah. Or the market's up five percent. Well, you spent five percent. So it is. You know, there is a cost to hedge, but there's also a cost to not sleeping at night. And whether this is the right way to hedge or not, I mean, we we have different ways of hedging. We have ways to, you know, not only do we hedge, we look at other areas to sell volatility uh, to help defray the cost. And there's different things. But my point of bringing this up is. It's like when everyone wants protection, it's really expensive. Like when the market's selling off in October, it was expensive. Right now, it's not expensive. It's relatively cheap. And it's probably cheaper than it's been in a while. Not the cheapest I've seen, but cheaper than it's been in a while. So I don't know. I mean, is that is everyone good? Like GDP came out, second estimate, right? I mean, what, 5%? Or was that the, I don't even know. I love it. I love the 5% number, Derek. Great. It's fantastic. I know. Yeah, it's just, it's all good. It's all good. There's no, yeah, no, nothing to worry about. At the same no, yeah. <laughs> Nothing to see here. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, it just, it. Well, like, look, I mean, uh, you know, we've, there's a lot of strategies out there, popular strategies known as buffered strategies, right? Where they will uh, kind of protect you from, you know, the current level down to a you certain mean like the amount, one that we right? do and, and have been doing for 10 years yeah something like that uh yeah we do have buffered <laughs> strategies you're right you're right you're right um uh and you know it's one of those things when you could buy protection you know at the money like this 
it makes those, you know, even more interesting, right? Because the whole cost of protection is a little less. So, yeah, like I think, um, I, I, I mean, there's so many other ways to pay for this, right? But if you, you know, the, just the straight up pure at the money put for a year out for 300 for a year plus, uh, really, I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing at a 5% cost. But like you said, Derek, the downside here is if the market's flat next year, you paid for the insurance. I, I like, and I'm going to call it insurance. It's not an insurance product, right? But the put acts as protection, right? It And the, the way that it acts as protection, and maybe this is worth digging into a little bit, if you don't mind, but the way that it acts as protection is, you know, puts go up in value as the underlying stock or ETF drops, right? Because your ability to sell at a certain price that's higher than the market has more value, right? So the S&P, right, the SPY is trading at 454. I'm using that because that's an ETF that people can actually hold in their accounts. Many people do. Um, and that 455 uh, put, which, you know, which is going to cost you 5%, is kind of right at the money. So if the market was to drop, was to drop, say, 50 points, that put that you have will go up by those 50 points, right, in what we would call intrinsic value, meaning the value of that put is going to, you know, be worth at least $50 to you because if you have the right to sell at 455, that's better than selling in the market at 405, right? So that concept of the hedge um, is interesting because, you know, you have this uh, offsetting um, position that gains in value while the market drops in value. So you have a stock that drops and you have a put that goes up in value. Your net is that kind of, oh, my account doesn't change very much because I got one making money while the other loses money, hence the concept of a hedge. But you can get, um, you know, tactical with harvesting taxes. You can use the profits from the put to buy more shares while the market's cheaper, right? There's all kinds of things that, you know, having that hedge on, all kinds of uh, choices that it gives you down the road. Whereas if you're a long stock, and you just hold the stock and the market drops, even if you sold it, your account value already went down, right? You can't buy more stock, you know, to have more shares by selling and then buying back. So it just, it gives you versatility and to have it, you know, at such a cheap rate is is unique. Uh, not totally unique, but I mean, it's uncommon. I don't know, Derek, I, I'm usually not an at-the-money buyer of puts, but at these prices, it certainly has piqued my interest recently. Yeah, and, and neither Jay nor I is saying everybody should do this. It's just, we like to comment on what we see in the options market. The way we run our strategies is, you know, maybe different and every individual may not have the same type of hedging needs, but I want to switch to the, by the way, the call side, we've touched on this before and that's because of interest rates and the cost of carry. Puts are cheaper than calls and it goes to to interest rates. And that doesn't mean like, oh, calls are, you know, expensive, so I should sell all the calls I can get my hands on or buy all the puts. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. It's just interest rates are contained in there. But for a long time, I mean, we saw this for 10 years after the the great financial crisis, 2008, 2009, you couldn't sell calls to even help to really materially finance the purchase of puts. Now that's available, but you do give up the upside. Everyone should remember, if you're selling a covered call, and I'm going to use your your words, Jay. It's what you the premium you receive is what you give up to put a ceiling on top of your stock. But calls because of interest rates, it's uh, there's some interesting stuff there too. 
Yes. Um, yeah, we call these collars, right, with a long put and a short call, right? That that strategy is known as a collar because, you know, you're like what a collar does, right? It, it wraps around, I guess, a collar on a jacket or, you know, kind of wraps around your neck. Same thing with this. It collars you in. But you're right, Derek, that, you know, these days putting on uh, a zero-cost collar um, is uh, is a lot more attractive than in years when interest rates were much, much lower, I don't think we want to get into all the dynamics no, no, no. of cost to carry and row. No. But it is very interesting, right? So for those of you, you know, that that kind of follow along at home and when, when we do these things, like I'm looking at that same um, uh, the same chain that you were talking about, the December 2024s, and right, that we talked about that long put costing you about 5%. You could sell an out-of-the-money call and make, you know, just a little more than 5% at the 480, which happens to be another, you know, let's call it 5.5% up. So you could own SPY, get its dividend, put on a put to protect you, and have that put fully paid for with a little extra by selling that 480 call. So essentially what you've done is you've created this structure where the most you could lose is... I'm going to say zero, right? You're protected and that protection was fully paid for, but you gave up the upside of everything above a five and a half percent move. So if I'm doing that math, Derek, right, what's the what's the one year uh, treasury paying these days? Oh, I knew you, would, you know I knew you would ask me that after I closed no, it down, I mean, but I will I will give it to you in uh in 2 seconds because I'm just that good, Jay. All right. The one-year treasury yeah, so, is 5.115% right now. So 5.115% is kind of your I'm going to say the a no risk or extremely low risk investment if you did this with uh holding in the S&P the best you can have, I guess, would be uh, still you have the low risk. The best you would have would be five and a half percent plus the dividend from SPY. So maybe you could get a seven out of it. So I don't know. Interesting alternative to buying the one year treasury. The, and you could put on this, you know, 13 month collar. Yep. I guess it's the only difference is you're almost certain. And, I, and I'm saying almost certain because it's, it's a pretty much a certainty that uh, you'll get paid back on your one-year treasury, and you'll get your 5.1%, let's just call it. You really don't know what the market's going to do, so you get into expected values there. And that's uh, I'm not going to do an expected values thing. Although, Jay, I will tell you that if you want to teach people expected value, watch a uh, – what was the Howie Mandel show with, where they opened the cases, Deal or No Deal? Oh, Deal or No Deal. Yeah, so, yeah. so you know there's like it's cases left. And you know the amounts that are that are possibly left. Well, you have a one in five chance of picking any of those cases. So you take 20% times each of the remaining values, and that's the expected value. And if the banker makes you close to that, then you should take the deal. You know, the banker says, hey, I'll give you money to quit playing. But if the, it's really low, if they lowball you, well, your expected value in theory is. Um, anyway, Jay, I want to I talk a little. Yeah, what yeah, you want to talk about that? Yeah, let's move on from this. Yeah. Let's go. All right. So today, somebody on Twitter, let me see, Charlie Biello reposted something, and it's uh, here, this is a this is a one eighty four. Go to uh, homes and real estate and things like that. So it is more expensive to buy today than it has been at any point 
And if I get to this, yeah. So it's the premium discount to buy U.S. home versus renting it. In the Q3 of 2023, 52%. So buying a home is now 52% more expensive than renting. The highest premium on record. No, the premium peaked at 33% during the last housing bubble in 2006. I found this interesting from, uh, you know, sometimes we're, there's a lot of people in the audience and uh, trying to decide, should I rent? Should I buy? There's also individuals who might be retiring and say, well, should we, we want to move, but should we buy a house? Should we rent a house? Like renting is really cheap relative to buying a home. And it's not as clear cut now whether you should rent or whether you should buy. And there's any other reasons why you do one or the other. But I, I just found this interesting, Jay. I'll kind of pause there, see if you have any thoughts. Yep. So uh, the, a big chunk of that has to do with there's an assumed mortgage rate in there, right? I would imagine. Sure. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, having a mortgage versus uh, owning outright. Um, so, I, yeah, this is kind of a weird scenario where renting is finally kind of, it seems to be more efficient uh, than owning. Uh, so what does that do? So that means... Um, you know, folks don't move in the example you just gave because they don't want to, we've talked about this, get rid of their low interest rates and they don't want to move to somewhere where it's a higher rate. And, uh, you know, so what does that do? So I, we've talked a little bit about how the impact to the rental market will actually be inflationary and owning a home that it's more expensive now is actually inflationary. And so since a lot of this is driven by, rates, which is driven by the Fed, who has the mandate to lower inflation right now, right? That's what they're trying to do. You could argue that they're kind of by leaving rates higher right now, they are actually going to cause housing inflation, which I think we've absolutely seen. So I think it's like this weird paradox, and it's not the first time you and I have talked about it, but I thought I'd bring it up again. There's this weird paradox that because of the action of the Fed to bring down inflation and slow down the economy, they've actually hurt inflation or increased inflation by increasing housing costs. That's my two cents on this one. Yeah, I don't remember what the, if I find, I'll put it in the show notes. But I believe a bunch of economists, including ones at one of the Federal Reserve Banks, of course, there are many, you know, there's St. Louis, there's Cleveland, there's a bunch of them, the member banks. They actually did a research paper and it was quite, you know, in-depth and, and well-sourced and lots of charts and graphs. We like those. And it actually pointed out that when the Fed is raising rates, typically you do get an increase in, in rental prices. And, in, and it's exactly yours. Like it, you're like, oh, okay, I'm not going to buy a house because the mortgage rates are 7% or 8%, whatever it is. So I'll rent, which means more people chasing too few rental homes, rental apartments. But yeah, it's a little bit counterintuitive. It also, it's, the other thing that I always bring up, and no one ever talks about this, but we will, and it's the idea when you have very low interest rates, most of your, about half your payment, or roughly, you know, it's almost 50-50. It's more, you pay more interest on your first payment that you do equity into your mortgage payment. And, but with rates at 7% or, or higher, or any, you know, anywhere higher, each payment, especially early on, more of it is interest 
than it is, uh, you know, paying down your equity. And so if you look at it that way, if you got a brand new mortgage today and you look at how much interest you're paying versus how much it would cost you to rent, I think interest paid versus rental paid is a really interesting comparison. So I just think it's a different way of, of looking at it. And there's any number of reasons why somebody wants to buy or not buy or rent or not rent, um, but it's not that clear cut anymore. Yeah, I gotcha. It's a harder decision. Like we always thought property made sense as an equity, as a you know, as as an asset, and maybe it will over time, but it might not be the right time. Uh, you could give somebody a house too, and it would be a little bit of a liability. I mean, think about it. You have to pay taxes on it. You have to upkeep. I mean, anyone who's a homeowner knows when stuff breaks, the roof goes, the hot water, whatever it is. And renting, you know, in theory, that's priced into the rent. But uh, anyway, all right, Jay, what else we got today? Which I have a question. Yeah, good. Uh, well, I was going to say, like, you know, taxes are included in that, right? Property taxes are included in that. Which way do you think property, which way do you think taxes are going to go over the next decade? Up or down? Um, Probably up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how they could go down at, at this point, right? Based on... Well, that's probably I mean, somebody's got to pay right, for the, so. the reckless spending, right? I mean, right? It's, I like how you threw in reckless. Like, it, you could just say the spending, but you threw in reckless, huh? I mean, All right. if anybody ran their, their small business or their household finances the way governments do, they'd be bankrupt 27 times over. But, you know, it's, it's all good. It's all good. It's, I, so far it is. I am seeing, <laughs> you know, we talked about this last week too. It's hard. I, I feel bad for, the, for everyone who, who says the market's going to crash and the economy is going to crash because of all the, the debt and spending. And they will be right. I agree they're right. I just don't know when it will happen. Because as I, I keep saying, I thought it was a problem in the 80s. Apparently I was wrong. It's all good. It's all good. So you might eventually be right. Um, I could be. I could be. I'm wrong a lot. I'm right a lot. But, yeah. you know. <laughs> uh, all right. What is this? Uh, by the way, Detroit, this is Lizanne Saunders put this out. Speaking of housing, in September, Detroit saw the largest year over year percent gain in, ho- uh, percent gain in home prices at 6.76%. I don't know what to do with that. I just random. Is that because the Detroit Lions are good, Jay? Well, it doesn't hurt. Detroit's looking pretty good this year, right? I, I agree. Uh, I don't, recovery happening, right? Um, unions renegotiating contracts. I don't know. Does that all kind of find its way in there? No idea. But it's a cool stat, so I, I read it <laughs> off. Yeah. Um, there you go. All right. Okay. I want to talk about just sentiment. And so there's a lot of sentiment indicators. They're, and typically, they're either risk on. Uh, which means that, hey, market's good, we're going to own stuff or risk off. And I think the AAII, bull versus bear, the current is risk on. And it it always... Really? Yeah. Well, this is according to uh, EPFR, DataStream, Haver Analytics, and Goldman Sachs. A lot of people involved in this. If you look at global equities flow over the 12 months, that's another one. Uh, looks about, and, and they, they have like zero to 100% scale, but it's, it's on the right-hand side, which is risk on. You look at call put vi- uh, 
volume ratios. And we look at it a little bit differently. It's one of the things we look at. It's actually more, it's left of center, which means a little more risk off. But this is, it doesn't surprise me because the market's recovered. And we know that when markets are doing well, people want to invest. And when they're not doing well, people don't want to invest. Like it's, there's there's a contrarian or a, a counter logic to something like this, Jay. Oh, well, I, um, okay. So when, when I, when I think about this, right, there's this, this, I go back to like a little bit of the crowd mentality, right? Would you say that that applies mm-hmm. here to a degree? Um, and, you know, sometimes it doesn't matter. And I think we all find ourselves to be a little guilty of that, which is why you kind of have to define your thesis a little bit ahead of time of, you know, on what the, the metrics are and the, the, the data points that are important to you before you're buying the market, selling the market, all those kinds of things. And so, and then watch for them to change. Because don't let the market, I, I just, you know, you can't always let the market dictate your mode or your your uh, your bias because the market can definitely, you know, act in a strange way and it could certainly throw you off, right? Don't go, oh, it looks like we continue to be up. I guess everybody's buying right now. I should be buying right now. But if the reason, if you don't agree with the reasons why it's happening, then I'm not saying, you know, to, you know, reinvest or, you know, continue to buy against the crowd. But my point is, you know, don't letting those those things occur shift your when that shifts your bias. I uh, based on what you saw the market, you saw some headlines, but you should be using real number, real data, like real rationale, real theory as to why you're making an investment. I don't care if you're deciding to buy oil or gold or stocks or bonds or trying to guess what the Fed's doing. You know, it's um, it's it's it ends up getting you into uh, uh, the you know you're chasing the crowd, right? And that's it's usually not a good spot to be. Um, by the way, on that note, I was going to ask Derek if you thought, you know, with every whenever we see financial data, are, have we switched now where good news is good news and bad news is good news? I mean, but maybe we'll finish up on the crowd mentality first. Uh, no, I think we're good on the crowd mentality. I'll also say that I keep seeing a lot of uh, charts about how much money is going into money market funds, but what I never see is how much of that came out of just banks where somebody had $100,000 sitting at a bank and are like, oh, one of the big banks, maybe they have a blue logo, maybe they don't, maybe they have a, a, an orange logo or a red <laughs> logo. You know who you are paying you know, one basis point. I, I just, I don't know how much of that, when they say it's on the sidelines, is it really on the sidelines or did it just come out of the banks and it's sitting in money markets because money markets are getting you know, a, a rate of return now. And we know, I mean, we help people in individually invest and we help advisors invest into uh, treasury bills and bonds. I mean, it's not as simple as, um, for, you know, it, it's, it's a relatively uh, easy thing for us to sort of look at, but not everybody knows how to buy individual bonds. So yeah, I don't know. I, I don't, I agree. It's people typically will buy and rush in to buy at the wrong time and rush to sell at the wrong time. And it just, it repeats itself over and over again. All right, Jay, what, what were you going to say though? What, what would you, before I, I transition us back here, you asked me a question. Oh, uh, good news, good news, bad good news, news. Good news is good news. Right. I think. Right now, goodness is good news. And uh, meaning like good, healthy financial data that shows that the uh, soft landing is more likely, pushes markets up, at least when the news comes out. And then 
you know, bad news. Uh, let's think about something that's bad news, right? Uh, you know, it might mean that, uh, I don't know, let's say the jobs number is going to be bad, right? When are we going to get that? I don't think we get that this Friday. Is it next Friday? Sorry, I lost track of which. You know, when, the, when like the first is a Friday, I don't remember if it's going to be this week or next. But anyway, when that comes out, if you have, uh, you know, bad news, like let's say, you know, less jobs are created than expected, that is considered, oh, it's probably deflationary. So the market will like that. Right. So it's almost like you have deflate, you know, if it's if it's bad news, it's deflationary, which the market likes. If it's good news, it's, oh, we're going to avoid a recession, which the market likes. I feel like we've moved to the good news is good news scenario and bad news is good news versus in the past, like, you know, a year ago, good news was bad news and bad news was bad news. Right. For the exact opposite dynamics. Anyway, it just feels like we've made that transition. I do, but it's something's not adding up. It's the old Sesame Street. Three kids are playing ice hockey and one is playing, you know, soccer. Which of these is not like the other? Like, you can't have all this good news and still expect the Fed to slash rates. And I think that's the base case for a lot of people now is that the Fed is going to start lowering. Uh, I think May is sort of the popular opinion. And some people are saying they're going to slash by a lot. So either they think uh, on below the surface, we have a, a recession or some pain coming up in the economy, but it can't be all good news and expect the Fed to cut because why would they cut? What possible, re if you have GDP at 5%, like why are they going to cut? Why would they possibly cut rates when GDP is 5%? Yes. I, I am with you. Uh, I'm just saying it seems to be, you know, the avoidance of, you know, I'm going to use the R word, the avoidance of a recession should be good news for the market, right? So they don't have to cut. They could leave it. But the market's good. Like rates have not stopped growth. No. Right? So maybe that's the argument. But look, but rates have definitely dropped in the month, month of November, right? The, I mean, rates are going down, right? Like the curve is, is re-inverting itself when it looked like it was uninverting it's reinverting it's reinverting Reverting? it's getting steeper it's getting <laughs> the inversion's getting steeper well at the same time yeah. i follow the cleveland feds inflation now cast and what that is usually every day or every you know you can look at a chart on it but based upon this data is coming out they put out like there's the atlanta fed gdp which is a now cast meaning taking the data as it comes in and making an estimation and the key of using these nowcasts, as you know, Jay, is that you want to follow the trend. Well, the inflation, the CPI, now has November's, which is going to come out in December, but the month of November, a month over month of minus 0 0.01 or 0 0.1. I forget which one it is, but it's, it's a negative. And that's the first time we've seen the nowcast do that. Now, you might say, well, it's basically flat, and it is. It's not that big of a deal. But yeah, I mean, the, the inflation right now, especially the fact that oil and gas prices retreated, which is a big part of, of the headline CPI. So I yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It, I also find it very curious. Curious is not the right word. But do you remember in 2022, everyone said, oh yeah, the recession's coming. The recession's coming. Didn't come in 2023. Then I said, you know, first half of 23. No, no, it's going to be the second half of 23. No, no, no. It, it, at least one that's not announced. We may have had a, a small one. Who knows? 
And now everyone's like, oh no, it's coming in 24 and the Fed's going to cut. And like, do you remember after, I, I feel like this narrative played out in 2008, 2009. I remember 2009 on, everyone's like, oh no, the big, the second crash is coming. Oh no, we're going to have a, another recession. And it just never came. We'll have a recession. I just don't know when it is. Yeah, sure. That will that call will be right at some point. Yes. All right, Jay. I want to eventually. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it always does. It always is. So, and how bad it is, who knows? I want to get to. All right, this is some old data, but I'm going to go with it anyway because it's it's 1928 to 2016, and I don't know if you're familiar with what is happening next year. And I, I can't believe we've got to go through this again, but there's going to be a, an, another election, which means our airwaves are going to be flooded with commercials. We're going to get the mailers and the mailbox. I'm in Arizona, which is now, what do we call, uh, you know, competitive state. So basically you can't watch TV. It's just commercial after commercial. But the good news for investors, Jay, is that First Trust says 1928 to 2016, the average all election year returns for the S&P was about 11.28%. Pretty good. And they say when a Republican was elected, 15.3%. When a Democrat was elected, 7.6%. And I guess this is this is election year. So it's not really when the, when the new president would be in the White House. Yeah, I mean, the new president will not actually have been in office yeah, yet. So, yeah. And we know I've run data on this, and it really doesn't matter that much, uh, Republican or Democrat, or the makeup of the House. We're going to have to dust it off again, because, you know, look, a lot of folks make investments based on yep. who's in, you know, in what government position and who's controlling the House. And, and so, I, you know, we'll, we, will, we will dust it off again. I, I do think it's worth noting that in other research that we've done and provided, that the in the presidential cycle, the third year has historically been the best year of that four-year cycle. And we are currently in the third year. And so far, it doesn't feel like it's so bad this year, right? Plus 20 on the S&P, not so bad. Yeah, I mean, state, uh, first. So the next year is usually a less. I guess I should have finished off with that part. Next year is usually less than this year. But this is a good one. No, no. I mean, yeah, strength of return. Let's say average return uh, is definitely stronger third year versus fourth year. Now, first trust, uh, first trust data says 19 out of the 23 years, again, going back to 1928, 83% provided positive performance. And it's a little, I'll read this off to you. When a Democrat was in office and a new Democrat was elected, the total return for the year averaged 11.0%. I don't know if it's the same person or, or a different person. And when a Democrat was in office and a Republican was elected, the total return uh, averaged about 12.9%. So pretty close. Pretty close there. It's yeah. All right. Well, it's around the corner for us to start doing that again. You know what else is around the corner, Derek? What's that? Predictions. We got some uh, predictions oh, to make yeah. for twenty twenty. I know. Or I did have a client reach out to me and say, you know, he was, he said he was impressed that we were pretty close on some of our numbers. Yeah, I've got a. I don't know which ones he was talking. About. He was nice about it. Uh, I don't know. I don't know who was closer. We'll, we'll see. I'm going to dust it up. You said yeah. me, but you know, he could have meant you or us in general. I don't know. I, I don't. You know who you are, Dave. I don't know. <laughs> All right. So let's leave it there. We'll have plenty more to go on this election thing. It's unfortunately, we've. it's going to come in the news again. I'm like, really? Do we really have to do this again? But I will say that 
in my research of per president returns, a lot has to do with where they take over. Like, could you imagine, you know, if somebody takes over at an absolute market top, like you come in at, at the very end of the tech, the, the dot-com boom, and that's probably a rough time. You want to take over when the economy is really, really bad. So you get that, that nice rebound. And then you can, you can tell everybody that you, that's because what you did. It's all you're, you're doing. Sure. It was your policies that drove the market higher. Yep. And if you're in office and the market's going down, you blame it on somebody else. Jay, I'm not going to blame your, uh, your recommendations. They've been very good lately. I do wonder, do you have any for us this week? All right. So I start, I have two shows that I'm watching on prime and, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to say they're so far, they're interesting. The first one is gen V. So it's a play off of, uh, the boys, uh, uh, which is a series about, um, if you're not familiar with it, it's about kind of like, it's a superhero series, but they're pretty bad people. Like the superheroes are more human than you'd want them to be like human nature kicks in right like the main good guy is actually a bad guy right like so it's so that's interesting so they have a spinoff called gen v it's kind of uh i don't want to give too much away on it but it's kind of like the the younger generation who is moving towards being a, a soup as they call them a super and then the other show i'm watching is also on prime it's an animated show called invincible it's the second season it's just out now my son and i enjoy watching that one together it's a little dark, but you know, if it's uh, it's not so bad either. But you know, neither of those are are high on my list. But that those are the two things that I'm watching right now. I will tell you, I wish I liked the superhero movies better. I just I I can't do it. Just not not into this. You might like the boys because they're it's pretty flawed. It's pretty, you might enjoy it. All right. Well, you you've told me I need to watch Dumb Money. You, you're like, come on, just rent it. So dumb money, of course. I think it's out on video now. If you want to rent it, it yeah, maybe I'll, I'll rent it. I have some travel coming yeah. up. Maybe I'll uh, I'll watch it on on the plane. Entertainment value. I know that that's going to be hard for you to get over the uh, uh, the obvious bias in the show, but it's entertaining. I thought you should watch it, you know, with your wife, but you know she's not traveling with you this week. No, so. no, no. All right. So the other one I, I I'm giving a pre recommendation because it looks interesting. It's called All the Light We Cannot See. It's a four part limited series, which means I think it's it's one and done. And it's 1944 World War is that one? I think so. That is uh, I'm going to check that out as well. I think that, yeah. Who is in that? I think I saw Mark that. Ruffalo and. Um, there's a, a German actor who was in the show dark, I believe, which I also enjoyed that. I think it might be world war two in the trailer. I thought they is it world war two. Okay. Yeah. The other one I'm, I'm looking forward to watching and I've got this one queued up, uh, download as well. There's a, on prime video, Barry Sanders, uh, like a, I don't know, hour and 40 minute docu movie about, you know, why did he walk away when he did, when he was at the top of his game? So that to me is is kind of interesting because you remember Barry Sanders. He was great, and he was just that was it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He, he was done. It was it. You just said it was done. It was, it, Him and that sounds like I saw that one as well. That looks interesting. It is amazing that you figure Jim Brown, who was the all time leading rusher before Emmett Smith, what did he play like 10, 11 seasons, and that was it. And Barry Sanders didn't. I mean, I think he played a couple more seasons than that, but not that many. Emmett Smith ended his career out here. He, we had him for a year. So, 
All right, Jay. Hmm. Let's call it it's there. Kind of like how the Patriots uh, have Ezekiel Elliott now, right? He's going to have this career not a cowboy. Yeah, well, Patriots having a rough go, but I think Belichick winds up coaching the Chargers. That's there's there's a prediction for 2024. He'll be the Chargers coach. Whoa. I mean, I know there's been some talk, but that's it. He's leaving, you think, huh? I think he's going there. Or do they ask him to leave? I mean, he's trying to get him the number one pick, right? And he's going <laughs> to – he's trying. The Giants, for some reason, are like, you know, just keep losing. No, no, no. We'll, we'll start winning. You can't even lose the right way. No, we're just going to win enough to not get a great pick. Yeah, they ought to great. hide everybody's I'm, keys. I got my head in my hands as I'm talking about the G-Man. I'm sorry. All right. We'll come back next week with more cutting-edge New York Giants football uh, analysis. <laughs> for now, we'll call it there. See everyone next week. Thanks for listening. This is episode 250. See you, Jay. Go Tommy Cutlets. Cutlets.